Hello, pod listeners. God bless you guys. Greg Boyd here, uh, coming with one final appeal uh, to our 2018 fundraiser. Uh, each week we've been reading a testimony, and so this week I want to read a testimony from uh, Eric in Fort Worth, Texas. Eric says, uh, I've been a pod now for about nine years. It has enriched my kingdom walk in so many ways, I can't begin to express my gratitude. Greg, Shauna, and the rest of the crew have been my companion on literally hundreds of miles of runs. So you're a runner. I'm, are you ultra, I used to do ultra marathons. Do you do those? I obviously don't do them anymore, but once upon a time, when I was 40 pounds lighter. So uh, then he says, uh, I look forward to being part of many more sustained campaigns in the future. God bless you, Wilden Hills. Eric, thanks so much for, for that letter. Really, really appreciate it. And all the letters we get, it just means a, a lot to us. And I hope you all know how much we, how honored we are to be able to pour into your life. You're part of our Padrishner community. So, so thanks for tuning in. So if this ministry has been a blessing to you, uh, if it's helped with you with your walk with God, and if you're in a financial position to do so, and we understand that not everyone is, but if you are, would you prayerfully consider uh, uh, becoming a sustainer? Just go to whchurch.org slash sustain. So God bless you guys. Hope you enjoyed this week's message. Take care. Good morning, Woodland Hills. As you may have surmised from that little video, the series that we're starting is on death. <laughs> Hallelujah! <laughs> it gives a, having a dead service or a dead sermon all new meaning. Uh, it actually is one of my favorite topics uh, for reasons that I'll flush out here in a little bit. Um, but I'll start with this. Some of you know, uh, oh, by the way, I'm Greg Boyd. I'm a teacher here if you're visiting, so hi. Okay. Um, I, I've shared this before, but as, as a child... I was just a little bit odd, a little strange. Okay, I was bizarre. Uh, it's surprising because I'm so normal now, but back then I was just a, a little touched with something. I had a lot of bizarre behaviors. I rocked all the time. I, I, I couldn't sit still. Um, and they would try to get me to sit still in, in, in class or when I'm watching television, but, but I would just naturally rock. I had a thing where I had to, uh, I, sometimes during the day, but always at night, I'd rock my head on the pillow back and forth and I'd be humming a song in my head. Or sometimes just out loud. And I, I would do it to the rhythm of that. Or sometimes I would pound my head um, into the pillow while singing a song. Uh, I drove my brother crazy. He was on the top bunk, I was on the bottom bunk, and he'd be hearing me going, But I just had to do that. It was like a compulsive need. And not t- totally normal, I guess. Uh, I, I've shared before that my favorite thing to do for up till about the age of eight or nine, I guess, was, was uh, to play with a stick and a string. I'd get a stick and a string, and I would make things out of that. Like, this could be a gun, the stick, and then this is the fire coming out of the gun, like that. And I always have sound effects, you know, uh, put in. Or this could be, you know, a, a, the wing of an airplane, and this is the wind behind the thing, and, or this is the propeller, like that, see? It's like, and and I'd I create stories in my mind, and I'd always be running around while I'm doing it. And I could go on for hours like that. And it was really a need that I had. I, I had to do that. Now, I knew that that was an odd behavior because everyone told me it was odd. So I always had to hide to do that. I, I'd get alone and just do my thing. Uh, and if I was in an environment where I couldn't do that for, you know, a long period of time, I start to have, like, withdrawal symptoms. I was started to jones. Uh, it, it, it's called jonesing. Isn't that what, having withdrawals? And I was, I was jonesing because I had to do my stinging, string and stick. There's one time where we went down to Detroit. We lived in Grand Ledge. And uh, we went to, it was my grandpa's birthday, as I recall. And, and there's a lot of people in this little tiny house. 
And we were there for a long time. It was about an hour and a half, two hours to get there. And then we're there almost all day, and there's no place to play with my stick and string. And then we're going to drive back, and I'm thinking, you know, for a kid, that hour or two-hour drive is eternity. And I'm, I'm like, how am I going to survive that? So I, I, I went into the bathroom, locked myself in the bathroom, and I looked for anything that could play the role of a stick and anything that could play the role of a string. So I found a, a Q-tip, uh, that was my stick, and then I pulled a little yarn out of the rug, and that was my string. And I just, for like five minutes, was, just went at it. And then they came knocking on the door saying, Greg, we got to go. You know, Hurry up. And I said, well, I'm having trouble pooping. I lied. Uh, but I had to get my fix. It was not entirely normal, I suppose. And, and another aspect that was weird in my childhood was that I was always fascinated with death. Thought about it all the time. I, I suspect it goes back to the fact that my mom died when I was two of leukemia. And uh, I am told, I don't remember any of this, but I'm told that I, I just couldn't accept that. They told me that the, God's angels came and took, took your mom. And I, for several months, I'm told, kept on saying, well, when are the angels going to bring her back? And they would say, no, she's, she's gone for good. She's not coming back. But I wouldn't accept that. I, I, I got mad at the angels. I, Tell those angels I want my mom back. I, I just, and and I, the, the finality of death, I just I couldn't accept it. At some point, it obviously sunk in. And I don't know when that was, but it must have made a big impression on me because I, I thought about death a lot ever since. I, I don't, as, as early as I can remember, death was on my mind. The first death I experienced um, was with my grandmother. I was five years old. And I, I, I wasn't sad about this because uh, this was the grandmother who tried to raise me after my mom died, and, and we didn't get along at all. I didn't like her, and I don't think she liked me. But I wasn't sad, but I was very curious Really curious. I, I remember being at the viewing, and I'm kneeling there by the casket. We were a Catholic family, so this is a Catholic thing. And, and we were supposed to like, say a prayer for her, and my stepmother was next to me. I'm supposed to close my eyes and say a prayer for her, but I couldn't close my eyes because I was just fixated on her face. It looked so odd. Uh, it, 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 it looked plastic to me. In fact, she reminded me of like a store mannequin. And, and uh, at one point, uh, my, my mom said, because we had to get going, other people wanted to kneel and pray. And so she said, okay, well, kiss grandma goodbye. And so, I know it. <laughs> Not good advice. So I kissed her on the forehead, and I was shocked. I just freaked out because it was so cold and clammy. And I went, I went, ew, and I screamed and started to cry, and I ran out of, of the viewing room. Uh, which embarrassed my stepmother and got me in a lot of trouble. But it just sort of freaked me out. And after that, I remember uh, asking my parents and siblings, um, is, is grandma a mannequin? <laughs> but I didn't know the word mannequin. And so I would ask them, is grandma a store person? <laughs> and, and they're like, this is a bizarre kid here. <laughs> and it didn't help that I, I had a terrible stuttering problem, so it took a lot of patience to listen to me. But I was, I was trying to like, is, is, is grandma a, a, a store person, a plastic person? And, and I remember being so frustrated uh, to tears for a long period of time because I couldn't get them to understand what I was trying to say. And, and they, they didn't want to talk about it. Um, but what I was getting at, I think, is... is I was wondering, like, like, what is it that keeps us from being a mannequin when we're alive, but once it leaves, we become a mannequin? I want to know what, what changed here. I, I think in my own five-year-old way, I was, I was investigating and questioning the nature of the human soul. Um, but I just didn't have any vocabulary to do it. And so I was very, very frustrated by all that. What's the nature of the soul? But the question stuck with me. 
Uh, we lived in an area where behind us there was all these woods, and I would spend a lot of time out in those woods, playing with my stick and string usually. But uh, I would occasionally come upon dead animals, and I would just stare at them, and I'd sometimes poke them with a stick. But I was always wondering what's, what left them that, that leaves them now in this condition. What, what did they have that kept them alive that now they don't have? Uh, I was just fascinated with that, and I would stare for long periods of time. I couldn't get anyone to, to, to talk about this. Uh, I, I, I came up with a theory in second grade uh, that, that the reason people don't want to talk about death is because they're afraid of it. And, 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 and see, I didn't have a fear of it. I was just fascinated with it. And that they, 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 they try to forget that they die. In fact, they do forget that they die. And I felt special because I never forgot that. Like, I, I felt like I had a secret. I know that we're all going to die. You think you're going to go on living, but I know. There was one time in a second grade class where the teacher asked the question of the class, and I knew the answer, so I raised my hand. But unfortunately, in this instance, I couldn't even get past the first syllable. So what came out of my mouth was like a... And all the kids in the class laughed. Like, they always laugh when I stutter. That's why I stopped answering questions by the end of the second grade. But... They all laugh. And I remember looking at them. It's as vivid as if it was yesterday. Here they are, all in their Catholic uniforms, all this uniformity, which I hated. And, and, and I thought to myself, you all think that I'm stupid, but really, you're the ones who are stupid. Because I know that we're going to die. And this is going to come to an end, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I was a second grade existential nihilist. Uh, but yeah, I, I felt special that uh, I knew something that they, they seemed to forget. And I, I never lost that, that obsession with death, even going into my teenage years. I used to, I've shared this before at some point, um, sometimes take girls on dates to graveyards. I loved graveyards. Once I could drive, I went to, <laughs> this was before goth was in, you know. I, I, but I, I loved like looking at tombstones and reading the tombstones and, and just wondering about their life, you know, and, and thinking about it now. And it comes to this. And, and, uh, and see, I never was good at small talk. It, it, it was a lot of work. In fact, still kind of a lot of work to think of something to talk about. I hate that. You get like that when you're, there's silence. And so you're supposed to fill it. Like, well, what, what do you talk about? It's so much work. It's exhausting. And, and uh, so this way, you, you could, uh, going to a graveyard, you cut to the chase, get to know the person real well. And there's always interesting things to talk about. Now, it didn't always work out well. <laughs> Often it didn't work out well. I had a lot of one-time dates. But Shelly didn't freak out. Uh, my wife Shelly didn't freak out, which is probably one of the reasons why we got married. It's my fortunate blessing that she likes weird. And so uh, that's why we live happily ever after. So I, I share all this to say this is why I think this series that we're embarking on here today is really, really important. If the Lord doesn't come back, we are all going to die. We're going to come to an end. And... Um, uh, or if you prefer, we're all going to pass away. We're all going to kick the bucket, uh, give up the ghost, uh, take a dirt nap, bite the dust, push it up daisy, six feet under, uh, go the way of the dodo bird. I never heard that before. Or, or go to the great northern farm. But anyways, a lot of ways of saying it, but we're going to die. Now, and that, that, that has always struck me as it's the most important fact of our life. And yet, no one seems to want to talk about it. It strikes me as bizarre. It's like we're all on a, our own train, and that train just keeps on picking up speed, doesn't it? The longer you're on this train, the faster it goes. And the only thing you know is that at some point, you're going to hit, a, hit an immovable brick wall. 
and that'll be the end of the train ride. But you don't know when. Could be in two minutes. Could be in two hours, two days. Could be in 20 years, 60 years. You don't know. But you're going to hit it. That's the only thing that you know for sure. And you're going to pay taxes on the way. Um, that's just, it strikes me as, as like, and, and yet we find a way of, of, uh, of acting normal. We're on this train, it's going to hit the wall any minute. But we, we, we can talk to each other on our trains, but we, we don't talk about that. We, we, we don't talk about the wall. And it just strikes me as surrealistic, like a bad dream or something. Is this real? Is this real? It's an, it's an odd thing. Now, if you're a believer, you know that the wall is not the end. In fact, the wall is the door to something beautiful. Um, and the more confident you are about that, the, the less death has any sting to it. And you lose your fear of death, the more confident you are about that. But even if you're very confident about that, and I am, um, that doesn't mean that death is insignificant. Because as a matter of fact, it's very significant. What do you think about death? Uh, it's going to affect a lot of the way you live. Or at least it should affect the way you live. And uh, it affects aspects of our theology. And so we're going to be talking about death, various aspects of death, the dying process. And we, we came upon this because a lot of the prayer requests we get concerns death. People are dying and all sorts of things like that. So we wanted to address this, this, this sort of need. So today what I want to do, in the time remaining, is to just lay a foundation for this whole series. And I'm going to be talking about death as the enemy. Uh, it's, not, it's not part of God's perfect design for creation. It is, in fact, an enemy. It's an alien invader, an intruder. I'm sure some of you have had this experience when a loved one dies. You've got grief, of course, and, and all that normal stuff. But there's something, I, I at least experienced this. I, I'd be curious if you do. It feels unreal. Do you have, have you ever experienced that? It feels, this can't be real. This feels like a dream. It just feels unnatural. And I think the reason we have that experience is because it is unnatural. This is something that we were never supposed to experience. Not like this. It's an it's a alien intruder, not part of God's great design for creation. Here's how much it's not a part of God's creation. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook of the same nature, became flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. So the reason, a primary reason at least why, why God became a human being and died a human death on the cross was to destroy the one who has the power of death, and that is the devil, in order to free us from the fear of death. So freeing us from the fear of death is a real central part of, uh, of the reason why, why, why God became a human being and died on the cross. But notice here that the one who has the power of death is the devil. Uh, another point Jesus says in, in John 10, he goes, that the thief, he's talking about Satan here, the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. By contrast, Jesus says, I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. So Jesus comes to give abundant life because God's on the side of abundant life. The one who kills, steals, and destroys is, is, is Satan. Uh, at another point, he's talking to the Pharisees, and, and he says that Satan has been a, a liar. The devil's been a, a murderer from the beginning. Now, there's no record of, of Satan personally killing people up until maybe the book of Job, but not from the beginning. And so most scholars agree that Jesus is here saying that Satan has been behind death from the beginning. And the beginning is when death first entered into human existence. 
he, he is the he, he's the one who holds the power of death. Same thing that the author of, of Hebrews says. Now that doesn't mean that Satan personally kills everybody. Like every person who ever died was because Satan murdered them. But it does mean that the power of Satan is behind all death. So here's what the, the, the early church believed. Every early church father believed this. That you know, human beings were given uh, a domain of authority, uh, a responsibility, over the earth and the animal kingdom. And because we have free will, we can use that authority either in line with God's purposes, uh, in which case we bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. That was God's plan. But we can also, if we want to rebel, we, we use our authority at cross purposes with God, and we damage the earth and the animal kingdom, which is what we've gotten very good at doing, unfortunately. But the same means, the early church believed, that God had given the uh, high-ranking archangels, principalities and powers, a, a domain of authority over all creation, over aspects of creation. They were in charge of that. But they also had free will, and they could use it to, to bring everything in alignment with God's will. But unfortunately, many of them rebelled. And that's where we get Satan and the fallen principalities and powers. And so they used their authority now at cross purposes with God. Uh, they damaged the creation. And so the creation, as we now find it, is not identical to the creation that God spoke into existence. Um, the laws of nature, as we now find them, are not uh, the corrupted versions of the laws that God originally put in place. That's why nothing works quite right. Uh, it, it's, we're, we're, we're in bondage to this. And so everything's been corrupted. The laws as they now are, and it, it's those corrupted laws that bring about sickness and disease and all the violence in the, the animal kingdom and things like that. According to the New Testament, we're, we are under the strong authority of this corrupting power. The whole world is. That's why Jesus three times refers to Satan as the Lord of this world or the ruler of this world, archon. Uh, Paul says that Satan is the god of this age and the principality and power of the air. And, and John goes so far in 1 John chapter 5, he says the entire world's under the control of the evil one. And so there's a, this corrupting influence throughout all of nature and throughout human society. Uh, this is why Jesus and the New Testament authors, they always identified the infirmities that Jesus healed. They identified those as being demonic in origin. And they never said, oh, this is God's will for you. No, this is something that the enemy has done. And, and, and yet those infirmities, think about this. Those infirmities, deformities, blindness, sickness, all of that, they are totally explainable on the basis of the laws of physics that operate now. Given the laws of nature, you're going to have random mutations and things like that uh, that bring about deformities and sickness, disease, blindness, and the rest. So the laws of nature as they now are, Jesus says that they're demonic in origin. That means that these laws that bring about these things must have a demonic influence in them. Even death. Death is totally natural given the laws of nature as we now have them. Second law of thermodynamics, everything tends to wear down, randomness and all that. Uh, and yet, we just saw that Satan is the one who has the power of death. So if the laws of nature as we now find them bring about death, and yet death is something that is not God's design, it's, it's rather a reflection of the power of Satan, well, it shows that the laws as they now are that produce, that bring about death, they're not the, they're corrupted versions of the original uh, laws that God put into place when he created the world. So sickness and, and death doesn't reflect the will of God. It reflects the influence of these corrupting powers. What reflects the will of God is Jesus when he, when he, 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 he takes back what the enemy stole and, 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 and restores health to people and occasionally raises people from the dead. So, so lock this in. God's always on the side of abundant life. And Jesus comes to give abundant life. God's 100% for that. So all killing, stealing, and destroying 
is a reflection of the enemy's influence. It's not God's will, it's the enemy's will. This is one of the reasons why I personally believe it's very important to believe in the reality of Satan and demons. And I know a lot of people today find that hard. I, I get pushback on this all the time from my colleagues that are a little more left theologically than I am. They're like, Boyd, how can you really believe in Satan and, and demons and, and, it, and all that primitive superstitious stuff? Uh, it's in the Bible. There you go. Uh, well, you know, here's the thing. For one thing, I've experienced some of that stuff, uh, supernatural demonic stuff that I don't think can be explained any other way. But more important than that, Jesus clearly believed in Satan and, and principalities and powers and demons. And since I confess him to be my Lord, I don't think I'm in a position to correct his theology. Certainly not something that's as foundational as this. Um, but the other thing is this. If, Look, if, if I didn't think that there's forces of evil that had corrupted uh, the, the nature as we now find it, with all of its violence and all of its ugliness and bringing about sickness, disease, and all of that, if I didn't think there's an evil force that corrupted that and that's why it's there, I'd have to believe that nature as it now is is exactly the nature that the Creator created it to be. That this is all the Creator's design. And, and there's a lot of nasty stuff there. It doesn't reflect the... the doesn't reflect the character of a benevolent God. And so to continue to believe that the creator is good, I think you have to believe that there's something else at work here that's corrupting the world as we now find it, as, as we now experience it. So Satan is the one who holds the power of death. Now, if that's the case, why did they tell me that God's angels took my mom? Like leukemia was God's great plan for her life and for the, my life and my three motherless siblings? Or why is it that so many Christians, in, when, when, a, when a child dies, they'll say things like, oh, God must have needed that child more in heaven than down here on earth. I've seen that on sympathy cards. Have you seen that? Um, like, like God says, hey, I, I, I need your kid, and then kills the kid so the kid can go to heaven. And there's dozens of slogans that people say in response to, to death that are like that. Um, you know, there, I, 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 a lady I knew had her five-year-old son uh, killed uh, by an inattentive driver. Uh, the kid's ball rolled out into the road, and this guy wasn't paying close attention and hit the kid, and the kid died. And the first thing that her Christian neighbor said to her was, well, God's will is mysterious, but he's still on his throne. Like, so God killed your kid. And we have all these sayings like this. You know, there, there's, uh, nothing happens by accident. There's a reason for everything. You know, God's still in control. God knows what he's doing. Uh, it must have been his time to go. Or I, I've had friends even who have, have had close calls. And, and, you know, they've rushed with death. And they'll say, well, it must not have been my time. Like, everyone dies at the exact right time. Everyone dies according to God's schedule. Time for you to die. Time, oh, no, your turn. Uh, it's the people who say these slogans, they, they, they're sincere and they mean well. It's good intention. They only want to help. But if you think it through theologically, this is disastrous. Like, like do, you re do you really want to say that you know, the one million kids under the age of five who were gassed in concentration camps under the Nazis, that every one of those kids died at exactly the right time? God's timing is the right timing. Must have been their time. And if that's the case, then you have to believe that God was orchestrating everything that the Nazis did uh, in order to round up all those kids to get them to the concentration camps so they could die on time. And we say God's a God of love, and so if God's doing that kind of thing, it must be loving to round up a million kids and get them to the concentration camp so they can die right on time. 
And if that's what it is to believe in a God of love, you can hardly blame people when they say, no, thank you. Uh, I, I'd rather not. Uh, it, 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 if that's what love is, what, what does evil do? Uh, but see, all those slogans, all those slogans, they, they assume that God is the killer. But he's not. That's Satan. And they assume that the power, that God holds the power of death. But he doesn't. That is Satan. And, and think about this. If Jesus came to destroy the one who has the power of death, and the one who has the power of death is God, then Jesus came to destroy God. Can we agree that that's absurd? No, the one who holds the power of death is Satan. This is not part of God's great design. Death is the enemy. Paul even calls it the enemy. In 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is the enemy. It's not a friend. It's not good. It's not part of God's great design. So why do so many Christians, uh, Bible-believing Christians, assume that, that death is all part of God's design and have these slogans? Why is that? Why, why do so many Christians confuse God and Satan, which is not a minor theological mistake, if you think about it? There's several things going on here. One is that um, many Christians still hold to this old pagan concept of God's power. It's a standard thing throughout the history of pagan religion that the gods are defined by their power, and their power is the power uh, of, of coercion, the power to control, the power to get their way. And, and, and unfortunately, a lot of Christians have just adopted that same model of power. And since they rightly believe that God's all-powerful, power, and if power is control, then they conclude that God must be all-controlling. And so whatever happens, is, it happens because God willed it to happen. Uh, including the death of a million kids under the age of five in gas chambers. Whatever happens was just God's will. And so, of course, no wonder they say uh, there are no accidents and, and, and God has his reasons and, and his mysterious, but, but we'll understand it by and by and things like that. They think God's the puppeteer who's pulling all the strings so that everyone dies right on time. But see, the New Testament has a radically different conception of God's power. It defines God's power by pointing us to the cross. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1, that the cross is the power of God. Uh, God's power is the, not coercive, not pagan power, it's the influential power of his self-sacrificial love. The power to change hearts by putting on display your willingness to sacrifice for them. The cross is the power of God. Uh, and so God is not this puppeteer manipulating everything so everyone dies on time. No, he's the savior who gives us life for us so that we can have life and have it more abundantly. Amen? So it's the wrong conception of power. But there's something even more profound going on here, I think. Um, it, it, for a lot of people, it, if you believe that the loss of your loved one was part of God's great plan, it, it makes it less tragic. It, it's, it seems less tragic to believe that your five-year-old uh, died according to God's plan than to believe that your five-year-old got their whole future snuffed out just because somebody wasn't paying close enough attention for a moment when they were driving. Uh, that seems like sheer waste. It seems fortuitous. It, it seems just so wrong, so utterly tragic. And I think that's one of the reasons why people want to grab onto something uh, in the face of tragedy. Okay, it's, 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 it's all part of a plan. And see, the, the folks who, who give these slogans, what, what they're trying to do is, is to say, look, I know it feels tragic, but it, it's really not, because it's part of this plan. In fact, it's actually good, because God's plan is good. Uh, and, and it's a way of bringing some comfort. Now, who can't empathize with that? In a time of, of, of tragedy, a loss of a loved one, a child, it's, it's unthinkable. Of course, you look for something to comfort you. But the thing is, you don't have to believe that the tragedy was part of God's great design to have that kind of comfort. All right? 
The, new, the, the hope of the New Testament is not that every, everything's okay now because it's all part of a great plan. That's, that's not the hope that the New Testament gives. The hope that the New Testament gives is that as screwed up as everything is right now, it will be okay because God will weave everything into his great plan. It's a future-focused thing. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 1. He says, For he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in, in, in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In the fullness of time, when God's kingdom is fully come, when his will is done throughout creation, then God, in the fullness of time, is going to weave everything together in heaven and earth, past and present. He's going to weave it all together into this like beautiful tapestry, bring it into a unity in Christ Jesus, in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, when God's kingdom is fully come, then creation will manifest the will of God, uh, God's purpose for creation. In the fullness of time, uh, God is going to put on display his magnificent wisdom and his ability to bring good out of evil and light out of darkness and, and beauty out of ugliness and joy out of sorrow. But see, that happens in the fullness of time. And the fact that it happens in the fullness of time presupposes, it means that it's not happening now. Not everything is united now. You might have noticed that. Not everything is harmonious now. Not everything is reflective of God's will right now. And death is one of those things. In fact, as I said earlier, right now, this world is in bondage to the principalities and powers and the ruler of Satan. Uh, it's, it's the corrupting influences there. So how could things be going wonderful right now? It, it, the, the world's full of stuff that's antithetical to God's will. The, the sin, the violence, the mayhem, the destruction, and death. That's not God's will. It's screwed up. But it won't always be this way. That's the hope of the New Testament. And God is going to, in his, in his infinite intelligence and wisdom, is going to find a way of redeeming everything and pulling it all together under one head uh, in, in Jesus Christ. In fact, follow this. This is why God's glory will be so put on display when he does that, when he weaves it all together. The fact that the world is so messed up right now makes it all the more glorious that God promises to weave everything together into a, 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 a harmony in Christ Jesus. Only a God of infinite wisdom could, could, could bring something beautiful out of a world that is this ugly. Only God of infinite wisdom could, could bring glorious beauty out of, out of the ugliness of this world and something good out of the evil of this world. Uh, and so it puts on display his wisdom. He can make something beautiful, and the material he has to work with is the crap of this fallen world. That's a glorious God. Amen? Amen. And so we're really, we're, we're insulting his wisdom uh, if we try to pretty up the world right now and think, say everything's okay right now. No, it's, the contrast is what, is what highlights the, the wisdom of God, bringing good out of evil. So if we trust that wisdom, if we really are confident of God's wisdom, then the comfort we can have in the face of tragedy, including when loved ones die, the comfort is not in thinking that this tragedy was part of God's great good plan. Um, no, it's a tragedy because it's not part of God's great good plan. It's a tragedy because the world was never supposed to be like this. And, and we shouldn't try to cover it up with pretty slogans. It's a tragedy. It is. It just sucks, and that's all you can say about it. But if we trust in the wisdom of God, then the comfort we have is knowing that God, God is, 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 is going to find a way to take this tragedy— 
as terrible as it is, and somehow redeem it, somehow weave it into this tapestry that Paul's talking about, this unity with Christ as a head. The comfort we have, in other words, is not, it's not that things happen for a good purpose. There's a reason for everything. And the reason is found in God. No, it's, it's not that things happen for a good purpose, but our, our, our confidence and our comfort is in believing that God, things can't happen with a purpose. In other words, God brings a purpose to the tragedy now that it happened. And God being infinitely intelligent, he, he anticipates every possibility, so he's been preparing a plan for every possibility. And now that this tragic possibility was actualized, God says, okay, I got a plan on how I'm going to take that and weave it into this beautiful tapestry. Every single thing in history, Paul says everything will be woven together. Every single thing, however nightmarish, however terrible, it's going to, God in his wisdom will find a way of weaving it into something beautiful. Put on, putting on display his glory, putting on his, uh, display his wisdom. So God doesn't cause or, or orchestrate or will tragedies, but he is a genius at using them as he weaves them together into his good plan. In fact, as we saw last week, he's, he's so brilliant at this that, that the, the, the good that he brings out of the tragedy in the fullness of time is incomparably better than the depth of the sorrow that you're experiencing because of the tragedy. And some of you who maybe are grieving because you've recently lost loved ones, uh, you, have to, you can't conceive of, of a goodness that could make this suffering not worthy to be compared to that. So Paul says this in, in, in Romans 8, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And given the depth of sorrow that we experience here, that just means that heaven is good, has to be some spectacular place. Uh, to outshine the sorrow of this world. The sorrow is, can't be compared to the glory that God has in store and is going to reveal when he weaves it all together. We can't conceive. We, we can't begin to conceive of that kind of wisdom and that kind of glory. But everything depends on our trusting that, in fact, God has that kind of wisdom and will reveal that kind of glory in the fullness of time when history wraps up and he weaves everything together into a beautiful unity in Christ Jesus. Amen? So I, I want to end with this exercise. Um, I, I think that, that preparing for death, uh, your own death and the death of loved ones, is, uh, I've always thought, a, a, a extremely important, one of the most important tasks in life is to prepare for death. And yet, most people hardly ever do this. Uh, this is the one spiritual discipline I'm actually good at <laughs> because I've been obsessed with it since I was a kid. Uh, there's there's things we can do that prepare us for this. And that's a lot of what this series is going to be about. Today I want to end with an exercise that addresses this issue. When a loved one dies, sometimes the sorrow is deeper and is prolonged longer because we can't let them go. We can't let them go. And so let's practice letting go. I'd like you to close your eyes. And imagine a person, uh, represent in your mind, your imagination, a, a, a loved one who has passed away. Could be a recent, could be a long time ago. Um, and if, if you don't have a loved one who passed away, it's okay to imagine a pet that you loved. That counts. I'm an animal lover. That can bring about deep, deep, deep sorrow. And if you haven't had even a pet pass away, imagine a loved one uh, who will pass away. And it's good to practice this even before a person dies. So you represent that person in your mind. And then let's spend a moment just thanking God for their life, this person that you loved. Thanking God for their life. It, it may have been way too short, but 
every moment is a gift from God. So give God thanks for that. And think about the meaning that this person had to you and the difference that they made. And now, just reflect for a moment on this fact that however profound your love for that person is, it doesn't, it pales in comparison to God's love for them. God's love for them outruns yours by gazillions. Even the person that you love most in life, God loves that person incomparably more than your love for that person. God is love, the kind of love that's revealed on Calvary. And so, however you want to represent this in your mind, and the Holy Spirit help us do this, and do it as vividly as you can. It's more powerful the more vivid it is. Release that person into the love of God. Can you trust God with your loved one? Now, you might be wondering, well, what if they're not saved? And my response to that is, that's not your business. Uh, don't worry about that. that, that, that that's God, God's business. Your job is to trust. To trust that God is this beautiful. And, and he will do the right thing. And you'll see that in the fullness of time. And so release them into the love of God and just let them go. Just let them go. Turn them over. And the Holy Spirit, just show us what that looks like in our minds. Thanking God for the time you had, but they never belonged to you. They always belong to God, and now you need to release them. You really, you need to release them. Turn them over. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to comfort our hearts. If you're feeling grief over that, uh, Holy Spirit, bring comfort here. And in your own way, in, in your heart, express to God your confidence that everything, somehow, everything will be redeemed. Everything about this person will be redeemed. Uh, somehow, um, every pain they experienced, even the wrongs that they did, their imperfections, their faults, it will all be woven together into a beautiful tapestry that you can't conceive of, but you can believe in, and you will understand in the fullness of time. Holy Spirit, help us to let go of everything that doesn't belong to us, including our loved ones. Trusting in your goodness, Confident in your grace, your love, and your mercy. Confident in your wisdom that can weave everything into a beautiful tapestry in the fullness of time. Amen. Amen. All right. Would you stand? I'd like to ask the uh, prayer teams to come up here and go by the stairs. And if you're here this morning and have any need that could use prayer, I'd like to encourage you to come up here and, and pray with these folks. They'd love to minister to you. And if you're here this morning um, and you don't know what would happen if you died because you're not a follower of Jesus. I'd like you to think about that. And if something's pulling on your heart, um, come up here and talk to these folks. They'd love to explain to you what it is to become a follower of Jesus because you really should know that. You don't know when that brick wall, when your train's going to hit the brick wall. So be ready for it. It could happen any moment. <laughs> Have a good day. <laughs> God bless you guys. Go all love your neighbors. <laughs>